Radio Mano Papachango. of Tangentially Speaking. This is a good one. This is with my buddy Brian Callen. You may have heard of him. He's a well-known actor, comedian, bon vivant. I think it's safe to say he's a bon vivant, uh, although I'm probably pronouncing that wrong since it's French. Uh, very worldly dude, um, literally worldly in the sense that he has been all over this planet He's lived in lots of different cultures. He speaks different languages. He looks at things from lots of different perspectives. And, um, you know, that is the surest sign of true intelligence, someone who can triangulate. Although triangulate suggests two perspectives. And I think what Brian does is uh, far beyond two perspectives. So I appreciate him. I appreciate him as a friend, as a man, as a thinker, and certainly as a comedian. Uh, his latest special is free if you have Amazon Prime. If you don't have Amazon Prime, I think it's a couple of bucks and it's well worth it. It's called Complicated Apes. Look for it on Amazon if you have uh, Amazon. If you don't, I'm not sure where to look for it. I don't know why it's not on Netflix. I mean, his shit is really good. I'm sure his next special will be on Netflix. But in the meantime, you can get Complicated Apes via Amazon. Uh, all right, a lot to talk about. Uh, my God, so much to talk about that I'm going to keep it all for a Roma, which I will record. I know I always say I'm going to do that, and I've got this list sitting right next to me. And, you know, all right, but... On the other side, I am doing these what makes this book great thing, uh, and they're fun. I'm really enjoying that. I'm getting lots of good feedback. Uh, I'm going to do another one of those real soon. I've already chosen what the next uh, reading will be. I've got four or five of them planned out ahead. Um, the responses to the last one, Cat Person, have been really good. Um, just some fantastic, very thoughtful emails and um, audio clips. Um, one woman actually responded to me in the voice of Margot, the female character in that story, which I thought was very creative and, and quite interesting. Um, people are, I wish we could do this as a class where we're like all sitting together in a room and have these conversations because people have insights that haven't occurred to me. Um, and I'm sure you know, you also would learn from listening to each other. Um, but I'll make sure to play some of those for you in the next What Makes This Book Great. If you want to jump ahead and actually read the essay that I'm going to be discussing, it's an essay called What You Can't Say, and it's by Paul Graham. Uh, you can Google him, Paul Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M. He has a list of his essays uh, available on his website. And um, yeah, what you can't say. I want to move from short story into an essay just to sort of show 
I want to celebrate how well thought out this is. I want to celebrate. Not, there's some really good writing in it as well, which I'd like to highlight. But in this case, I want to really look more at um, the quality of thought. It's a fantastic essay. I've, I've mentioned it in many, many episodes of this podcast. Anyway, so Brian Callen, he's fantastic. He's funny as fuck. The downside of this particular episode is that he is recording it on an iPad Pro. He's not using a microphone, and so the sound quality on his end kind of comes and goes. There's construction going on in his house. Um, you know, when you get somebody as busy as Brian to do your podcast, uh, you know, to agree to set aside some time, it's hard to say, yeah, man, the audio quality, like, could you go get this? Could you do that? Could you hook this up? Could you hook that up? The dude's busy. He's got stuff going on. He's got to go see, you know, pick up his kids at school and blah, 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 blah. He's got that kind of a life. Um, so we just went with it. Um, so pardon the audio quality if it, uh, you know, I certainly understand if it's not up to your standards. Um, but depending where you're listening to this, you should be able to hear him uh quite well for most of it and adequately for some of it. All right. That is the end of my introduction. I'm going to shut up now and just let you listen to this conversation. But before I do that, I'm going to play you out with a song that a guy sent me. Uh, I'm getting, by the way, if, if you sent me music or emails or anything else and I haven't responded to you, my apologies. Uh, I think this quarantine has sort of turbocharged um, the, the sort of virtual contact between people. I'm getting far more emails than even I was getting before, which is still a lot. I mean, in, in the hundreds a day kind of zone. And I just can't keep up. Um, people are sending me songs and um, poems and emails, uh, heartfelt, you know, pleas for um, advice or just telling me some interesting anecdote about their lives. And I read them all. Uh, but that's that already takes up like from when I wake up in the morning till around noon and I wake up at eight, something like that. So I have a couple cups of coffee. I read the emails. Um, I try to listen to the songs that you send me and so on, but I just can't respond to them all. So please accept my apologies if you haven't heard back from me, but I have read uh, whatever you've sent me. So thank you. Um, anyway, this is from a guy named Colby. He um, wrote this song called Civilized to Death. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's funny because I... Obviously, I'm touched when someone does something creative based upon something that I've done. Um, but if I didn't like the song, I, I I wouldn't play it for you. I would just say, thanks, Colby. Um, but anyway, here, the, these are the lyrics. The stars were our guide. Now we stare at screens. We speak in headlines. We're hooked on like bait. There's a war on our bodies. They're bleaching out our brains. And I'm here sifting through the moral remains. Distract and divide. We are free to pick a side. The wicked won't rest until we are civilized to death. Hope is a flicker, but light still remains. 
The air is thicker, but I still breathe. Time moves faster. I hang on to the memories. In the face of disaster, I see through to the human being. Distract and divide. We are free to pick a side. The wicked won't rest until we are civilized to death. Hope is a flicker. I really like these lyrics. Uh, it captures, the song captures several things that I think about a lot. Hope is a flicker, but light still remains. You know, I think about that and I wrote about that in the book, this sense that hope is not always our friend. And yet it's presented as something that's always good. You know, I need to have hope. People need hope. People need, um, you know, I get this a lot like, you know, well, your book, I don't know. It's, um, you know, it doesn't really give us uh, a way out. What if there isn't a way out? Isn't that a legitimate thing to say? I mean, if you have terminal pancreatic cancer and your doctor tells you that and you say, yeah, but doctor, you didn't tell me what medicine I should take. And the doctor's like, dude, I just told you, you have terminal pancreatic cancer. I'm sorry. This is time for you to get your shit together and think about dying, right? That's a legitimate thing to say. That's a, that is a situation that virtually all of us will face at some point. Um, and yet, in our lives, we so often we pretend that anything without hope is illegitimate. You know, anything without a way out. There's a big controversy going on right now about a movie called Planet of the Humans that Michael Moore produced. And um, it's sort of fractured the environmental movement because I think, as I understand it, I've watched the movie. I haven't studied it, but I watched it. And the central argument seems to be that this idea that we're going to grow ourselves out of the environmental catastrophe is nonsense. No matter how many Teslas we buy, no matter how many solar panels we put up, no matter how many wind farms we erect, uh, we are not addressing the central issue, which is that there are too many fucking people on the planet and that most of those people use too many fucking resources. And so we're not going to develop our way out of this. The, the global population is increasing exponentially, exponentially. It's out of control. It's been out of control for years. I think world, I think global population has doubled in my lifetime. There may be even more than that. It's out of control. And, you know, people say, yeah, but women have fewer kids when, you know, they're educated and when they, they're more affluent. Look at Japan. Look at Spain. Look at France. True. But there's no way that Pakistan and India and Bangladesh and Nigeria are going to ever have the kind of affluence of Japan or Spain or France uh, with, without the entire planet being sunk. There's no way to bring hundreds of millions of people into the kind of life that we consider normal 
the kind of resource extraction that supports our gadgetry and our silliness. There's no way to do that on this planet. And so this idea that we're going to develop our way out of this catastrophe is nonsense. And anyone who dares to raise the question of population growth and and the need to constrain and reduce global population is demonized, as I have been. Uh, I got into a discussion with an environmentalist um, who I know, and, uh, you know, within moments I was being dismissed as a fascist and, um, you know, just like simply because I said, I think the central argument of the movie is true. Now, some people are saying it's unfair. It demonizes Al Gore and Bill McKibben and, you know, sort of plays some games with the actual efficiency of solar panels and wind farms and so on, that they've increased their efficiency recently. And so, but, but the point is, and that I'm not disagreeing with those specifics, but the point is technology is not going to save us. Every time we get a technological fix for some mess we've created, we create another mess. So, you know, Chernobyl is going to be radioactive for way beyond the lifetimes of anyone listening to me right now. Uh, We're not even talking about the Japanese nuclear disaster. I'm, you know, I would bet money that the Japanese are leaking radioactive water into the ocean intentionally right now while the world's attention is distracted by coronavirus because they were storing tens of tons of fresh water every day that they had to run through those reactors to keep them from exploding. And you you just can't like keep building more storage containers forever, right? You can't, it just can't happen. So they're just holding on. It's like a patient on life support, but the patient's going to die. So why? Okay. That water's gone into the ocean. That's just the way it is. So now, later, it's just a question of when. Um, I don't know how, how I got off onto that. But the point I was trying to say was, like, what this song uh, captures is that hope is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And the ability to see hope, even in a seemingly hopeless situation, is a a quality of human beings that's actually quite admirable um, in most cases, but it's also a quality that leads us to ignore uh, the, the reality of our situation. And so in Civilized to Death, I said something about, you know, um, hope is exactly like uh, the sort of, you know, unflinching, always hoping for it's going to get better. That's exactly what casinos want you to believe, right? That's how they get all your money, not just most of it. When you're down and you're like, I've got hope. Things are going to turn around. You'll see. But they don't. Not always. 
And sometimes you're in a situation where you've got the terminal pancreatic cancer and hope is not going to help you. All that hope's going to do is distract you from the work you really need to do. And I kind of feel like that's where we are as a civilization. This idea that wind farms and solar panels are going to solve the problem. They're not. The only way to solve the problem is to address the cause of the problem. And as I see it, there are two causes to the problem. One, how human beings interact with the natural world. And two, how many human beings there are. Now, as long as there are billions and billions and billions of human beings, it almost doesn't matter how we interact with the natural world. There are just too many of us. But certainly the way we interact with it now is not sustainable for billions of people. I don't care what kind of technology we come up with. Um, yeah, and so this this hope is a flicker, but light still remains. The air is thicker, but I still breathe. The time moves faster. I hang on to memories. Um, it's always looking at the bright side is a great thing, but sometimes it allows the darkness to gather. It allows darkness to spread because we're finding that little flicker and we're accepting that. That's enough, right? We're free to what's the line he says here we're free to choose where is it we're free to pick a side right we're free to pick a side what kind of freedom is that we're free to choose in america between donald trump and joe fucking biden is that freedom no oh, here you go here are your options you want coke or pepsi those are your options what if i just want water what if i want a beer what if i want a glass sorry we got Coke and Pepsi. Those are the options. You're free to choose one. Congratulations. All right. Anyway, that's enough for me. This song is called Civilized to Death, and it's by Colby Rupport, or Rupport. I'm not sure how he pronounces that. R-U-P-O-R-T. And the band is Colby Kent. Oh, maybe that wasn't his name. Colby Kent and the Stomping Ground. That's the band. And uh, they've got a band camp, Colby Kent and the Stomping Ground dot bandcamp dot com. Check them out. Download their music. Tell them how much you love them if you do. Thank you, people. I'll be back to you soon. Hope you're doing okay in quarantine. Keep the faith. Look at the bright side.
So, Brian Callen, thank you for doing this, man. We were, we, 
we were just talking about uh, whether this isolation was difficult for you because you're a very social person. Um, are, are you yeah, working it's on not, It's not. Yeah, it's not. I, 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 but look, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I have FaceTime. And that's all you need when it comes to your family a lot of times. You know, obviously, I, I get to see my kids every day. But the rest of the time is a responsibility. I got to do work. Now is the time to create. I'm in the business of original self-expression. So I try to I try to take the time to write and I don't do enough of that. So then I just fret and beat myself <laughs> up for not writing. So it's, it's, it's your usual, dude. It's your usual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's right. People ask me. Pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a writer, this is normal life. Just sitting around in a room by yourself all day, fretting. <laughs> Correct. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Hey, listen, congratulations on your latest special. I just, I'd watched it when it came out. I just watched it again this morning. Uh, what's it called? Complicated Apes? Yes, on Amazon. Streaming free, ladies and gentlemen. Is it Thank free you. now? Okay. Well, I'm a Prime mm-hmm. member, so I, I didn't know if it was free for everyone. But, <laughs> yeah, if you're a Prime member, it's free. Yeah. Uh, it's, exactly. it's really good, man. I, I mean, and, Thank you know, you. Uh, it's it's very thoughtful. And, and when I was watching it, I was, I was thinking about the degree to which, uh, as a comedian, of course, your I guess your primary, um, ugh, I don't know, responsibility or or desire is to make people laugh. But it seemed to me that you were very much interested in um, conveying something that was more than just laughter, like more than just funny. It was it was educational and philosophical. Um, is that something yeah, you're I mean, that's, conscious of? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that as you get older, you know, the idea is to stand for something uh, and also to criticize by creating. If I could borrow um, uh, a line from Michelangelo, I think Eric Hansen, my buddy, used it first and then that he got it from Michelangelo. I, I, I never f- stopped thinking about that that line because I, there's so much about the world and ideas that float out there that make me anxious. They terrify me. That's really what happens to me is I get scared that the wrong ideas are going to win the day. So I didn't really know how to fight back, but I'm, I'm in the business of satire and I'm in the business of expression and I have a platform. And rather than be... You know, sort of one side. The problem with choosing one side is that I'm wrong way more than I'm right. And I'm always afraid that every time I take a strong stand on something, somebody from the other side comes along with a thoughtful point of view or or something I missed. And I'm always like, ah, shit. So comedy is a good way of getting people to laugh and to see the inconsistencies and contradictions that come with the human condition, that come with being a thoughtful person. You know, when you're, when you're a thoughtful person, you tend to many times um, think yourself into a corner. It's probably why academics and scientists use the words like it depends and we'll see and I don't know more than the rest of us. Because the more you learn about subjects, the more you, I think, highlight your own inconsistencies, your own contradictions, um, your own your own biases, and that's that's what's so difficult about about I suppose 
making a stand. Uh, I, I don't think that that excuses you from political and philosophical commitment. You, you, you do need to come up with some kind of a stance and a position. If you don't, somebody else with more volume and ambition will take your place, and that can be a very dangerous situation. You've got to be able to debate. You've got to be able to, to win the day and convince others that you are correct, if indeed you are. I do think there is a better position philosophically and politically. Um, I don't, I'm not a relativist, but that's the rub and that's the dance. That's the dance. But it does seem that the stance you were taking, at least in, in complicated apes was in favor of, um, humility and flexibility. Like you said, you know, I'm not a noun, I'm a verb. I change, I change my opinions. So even if so, you're taking a stance, but it seems to be a stance, uh, you know, sort of predicated upon the humility to change your mind, the openness to other people's points of view, the awareness that you're often wrong when you assume things about other people, like in the anecdote about, you know, you on the airplane with the woman looking at the magazines that you ended with. Yes, 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 because we live we live in a time when you can make a lot of money. Uh, taking a strong position on one side. Think about Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity. Think about the people that 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 take strong positions on one side of the the argument. There's a lot of money to be made. Think yeah. about people who tell you uh, about diet. Those that, that the proponents of a carnivore diet, a paleo diet, a a vegan diet. There's a lot of money to be made in 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 being sure about a subject and writing a book about how it cures all all your pains, spiritual, intellectual, and physical. Yeah. Do you you think people are hungrier for those kinds of answers now than they were in the past? Do you think there's less? No, we've always been been hungry for them. Always been, yeah. In fact, fact, I I think it's become easier to be less committed because there's enough protein, enough carbohydrates, enough fat. You can you have access to things like stable s- nation states, and and war is no longer something that's going to actually come knocking on your front door. Starvation isn't a reality in the winter. These things tend to make you more reasonable. They tend to make you. It affords you the luxury of less commitment. Commitment is ugly. Hmm. Commitment is is. Uh, is is not pretty it's 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 you lose friends it's it's hard to keep polite company and swill wine with real commitment well one of the things i love about gore vidal and i listened to a debate between gore vidal and uh, and norman mailer those guys were committed i mean you know they 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 would get up they get in, on tv and they yeah. would debate for 45 minutes and the stakes were real because you know we were just coming out of a war in vietnam and, um, and uh, Gore Vidal is, is a guy my father loved to criticize because my father's an old school conservative. I have enormous respect for that guy. A gay man in the 60s and the 70s who, and, uh, who never in the 80s and even in the 90s who, 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 well, in fact, in the 2000s, but he never stopped, you know, he never stopped speaking for the forsaken and the forgotten and the misrepresented and the, and the people who didn't have a voice. 
whether he was right or wrong, I mean, I, you know, okay. I mean, I'm sure everybody is inconsistent, but um, he made a lot of enemies. It's not because it wasn't fun for him. It wasn't what? fun for people like Mailer and these guys to make a, to, to take a stand and try to be revolutionary in their writings and their thinking. That's fucking takes guts, man. That well, takes guts. Yeah. And also the another thing about Gore Vidal is that he was born into extreme wealth and he essentially yes. betrayed his class, you know, yes. to, yes. That's to stand with the oppressed. Yeah, yeah, he I, fought in the war for three years. He's a badass man, a handsome son of a bitch. But yes, you're right, man. He was he was he was a guy who kept he told the powerful, he called the powerful out on their hypocrisy. And I appreciate that, you know. See, he, he debated people, Roy Cohn, William F. Buckley, Norman Mailer. I mean, he was there in the mix. Yeah. Were you watching uh, the, the Dick Cavett? Is, was it the Dick yes. Cavett appearance? Yeah, yes, me too. Sir. Yes. Yeah, I've How watched Dick a, Cavett? What a show. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I miss those days. I, I'm older than you, but uh, I guess we both remember Johnny Carson. Uh, you yeah. know, like it, it, the... Sort of long form, the conversations, Dick Cavett or, or Crossfire with William F. Buckley, you know? Oh, fantastic. My father used to make me watch those, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that William F. Buckley, who, who, who always sounded as though he, he was English, of course. Yeah. I mean, I always, I always wondered if he actually was English, but he wasn't, was he? If I were to romance your argument, I suppose, which I wouldn't do in the real world, but I will hear. Mm. Yeah, they, they, there is this whole language, you know. They, they, there is, there is. They studied the Skinner technique, you know. Like Catherine Hepburn learned how to speak this way. You see, yeah. And they what, all were products. That's, that was the blue blood. That was there was a language. There was a protocol on how you spoke. It was heavily influenced by the British landed aristocracy. Yeah, yeah. Because of course, the British accents denote class, whereas American accent denotes region. Uh, and so, yeah, there right, was, that's right. There was that period where they were trying to develop a, a way of speaking that denoted their class and education. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Those guys yes, were amazing. Indeed. So, yeah. but you grew, you grew, t take me through your childhood. You grew up, you were born in the Middle East, right? In Dubai or someplace? I was born, I was born in the Philippines, Manila, Philippines. Oh, okay. My, my, my father then went to, uh, took us to Calcutta. Uh, then we then we moved to Bombay, which is now I suppose Mumbai, and my sister was born, and then we moved to Lebanon, and then we moved to Pakistan, then we moved back to Lebanon. My 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 fondest memories, and when we were in Lebanon, the war broke out. Of course, no one saw it. It was a black swan, not unlike, uh, uh, and I'm of course stealing from. Uh, uh, Nassim Taleb, who, who lived yeah. through that war and, and highlights it in his book, The Black Swan. But um, it, like this COVID thing, you know, it, it, nobody saw it coming. It, it, it was supposed to last a weekend. And of course, it lasted 30 fucking years. And uh, anyway, we were in it and my father couldn't get back. He was he, he was, I think, in the United States or Greece or somewhere. And we couldn't get back in. He couldn't get back in. We, we were living in the Holiday Inn. I remember sleeping on the floor. And then finally, we had to sleep in the underground garage. Um, and so, the, so, so when we were evacuated to Greece, my, my friend had to be evacuated in, in an armored car. My friend, Stephen Katib, I remember 
I wasn't. We we got there in a bus or something. But I remember hearing armored car, and that sounded wild. And I was like, wow, I, I was jealous. How old? So were then you? we we were evacuated. I was uh, I was eight, nine, ten, you know. Huh. And then we moved to uh, Greece, where I spent three years, and then Saudi Arabia, where I Damn. finished. Uh, where I, I finished eighth grade, and I went to boarding school. My family was still in Saudi Arabia, and I, I was shipped off to boarding school because I had to be because the schools didn't go past ninth grade. Uh, so uh, I, I went to boarding school in Massachusetts. I had a choice between Switzerland and Massachusetts, and I went to Massachusetts because I wanted to be a wrestler because I wanted to be muscular. This is this is this is how boys are. At least I was an idiot. I always wanted to be tough. I wanted to be the Marine my father was. And, of course, I wasn't born with, born with his bone structure. But anyway, uh, so I went to Northfield Mount Hermon, where they had a great wrestling tradition. And I saw a picture of a guy who had huge muscles on the wrestling team. And I said, that's going to be me my senior year. And that's why I want to go to the school. Mm. Yeah, I said it. I didn't grow the muscles, but I became an okay wrestler. And uh, so I, I, I went to Massachusetts for four years in Northfield Mount Hermon. Then I went to... Washington, D.C. I went to college in, at American University where mm-hmm. I was a history major, useless degree. And here I am. Here <laughs> what I was, am. What was your father doing? He was, was he in the military or why were you moving around? My father was a banker. He worked for Citibank. And, uh, and rumor has it maybe he worked for the government as well. Who knows in what capacity? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, those those are right. some pretty interesting uh, placements for a banker from Pakistan to that's, Lebanon. That's what they say. That's what yeah. they say. So. Uh have you ever seen the uh, Anthony Bourdain uh episode where he's in Lebanon when the war breaks out? No, but I I I want to cuz I oh, love yeah. I love Bourdain and I love Parts Unknown. But I've yeah. not watched any of the No Reservations, which I need to do. Yeah, I think it was no reservations. It was in the maybe the second or third season uh, early on. I can't wait to get. I can't wait to get involved in that. I'm going to watch all of them. Yeah, check it out. It's it's that's the one I think that won the Emmy. Um, for, really? I don't know if yeah yeah because it was all Lebanon. Lebanon is, Lebanon is so beautiful. It's 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 home to the Phoenicians. You know, Lebanon's downfall was was the Christian Muslim divide and the French the French favoring the Christian side. And then the, the factionalism that goes on in Lebanon is, is hard to keep up with, even for people who live there. Yeah. But God, what a beautiful place. What a great place. What a, what a fun group of people the Lebanese are. Well, it's funny because, so. I mean, culturally, the same thing that makes a place unstable, potentially, is what makes it so interesting, right? Is that mixture of cultures. I think of South Africa that way. What mm. a great place. A powder keg, and I, I hope that rainbow nation can stay a rainbow nation. It always worries me. Yeah. But yes, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I mean, you're it right. makes it makes for the most beautiful people, the most delicious food, the most interesting history. You know, that that well, mixture. Yeah, people are hopelessly people are hopelessly tribal, and I think what what changes all that is commerce. You know, um, my friend's a social worker, and he was saying that even on Skid Row here in Los Angeles. It breaks into black, white, Latina, you know, all gay. It breaks into these tribes. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, when you when you drive by Skid Row, you think they're all living, you know, as in, in different. No, no, no. It, it, it even breaks into tribes there. 
So yeah, uh, yeah. But, but, but when when people have to rely on each other for trade and commerce and and bottom line dollars, uh, that's when you have intermarriage. That's when you have people who get along with each other. You know, you're doing business with each, with each other on a daily or a weekly basis, and and you're relying on each other. There's a symbiosis in a in a society. Um, and unfortunately, war tears that fabric apart. Yeah. Yeah. There's. So I forget who it is. Some historian uh, argues that no country that has McDonald's has ever had a war with another country that has McDonald's or something like that. That that's right. I I think that might have been either that might have been Francis Fukuyama or it was it might have been Darren Asimoglu and and his partner who wrote when why nations fail. I th- one of them. Mm, yeah. I believe. Yeah, but, I think but you're the problem right. Was, that was later proved not to be so, um, but yeah, for the most part, I think that holds that holds water. Yeah, because you say the interdependence sort of uh, creates a big counterweight to to whatever advantage there might be in in armed conflict. Have you? Yeah. So you you were in Lebanon when the war started out. Have you been in any other war zones in your life? No, I've not. I, I, thank God. Thank God. I mean, besides Afghanistan, because I went there for two weeks to do stand-up for the troops. And that was no shit. just was that terrible. Like? It, was, it was an honor and very moving for me and very scary and an amazing experience, but, but very, very sad and very depressing. And uh, I'm glad I didn't know how hopeless that war effort was then as I do now. I was way more naive and mm. too reverent. Um, and, and uh, uh, you know, I am appalled and rather outraged that we 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 spent 17 years in a country uh killing lots of people and sacrificing a lot of american lives and limbs and and well-being and mental well-being um and uh and and re- and knowing all along by the way knowing for many years that this it was a bullshit effort and that we weren't winning the fucking war and uh shame on this is what happens when you fucking go to war like this uh, without a plan. Um, you know, we have, we have SEAL team guys, we have, we have operatives, major, you know, Delta guys and SEAL team six guys and all these guys, they've been in, they've been in the theater for 12, 13 years, killing, killing, killing high value targets, whatever it is. We have the CIA outsources to their contractors uh, a lot of dirty work that's in the gray legal area. Um, I, I've had too many conversations with people who were really there, who really did the killing. I, and and, and um, I've been privileged enough to get close enough to some of these guys where I, I hear what they're talking about. And um, we've never asked that of our soldiers. We've never asked that of our military. To be in a theater of war like that in the shadows Killing where you lose track of how many fucking people you kill, uh, and I'm talking about people that operate drones, and I'm talking about, I'm talking about operators that go in at night and do these things, and 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 at, at great expense to their psyche and their lives. Take a look at the suicide rates, and we gave the country back now to the the, the Taliban. I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it makes me it makes me so angry. And, and so outraged. And I don't know where the fuck the oversight is. Why are we letting, why are we letting Navy SEALs serve for 10, 15 years in the theater? Why is there not a, 
why is there not a limit where you go, hey, dude, you've been in the field for five years, four years, three years. You've racked up 300, whatever it is, deaths. Time to go help recruits become better Navy SEALs with all your experience. Because this is turning you into a ghost. See, nobody wants to talk about it. Because the people that are involved in it, they won't say anything about it. And I'm done with being politically correct and the sacred nature of our military. Nah, no. I'm, I'm very critical of our Pentagon, of our military now, and how we have conducted this war at expense, at the great expense to to very few people, namely operatives who are doing this stuff. They won't tell you. Those guys won't tell you until they put yeah. a bullet in their fucking mouth. Yeah. You know? Which yeah, is happening I, so I agree, I'm, dude. It's madness, dude. It's madness. And we, I, people, the rest of us go about our lives. Now, having said that, fuck, it has... They've done a. We haven't had any major terrorist attacks on our soil since 2001. Nobody predicted that. That's a good. That's a hell of a job. That's a hell of a job. At what expense to our democracy? At what expense to the people doing the fighting? At what expense to the human beings, the civilians in Afghanistan, Iraq, yeah, yeah, East Africa? Yeah, and and we're not even talking about money. Trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh Could have been. Yeah, we you know, could have just paid the Taliban exactly. to open up McDonald's. Well, that's I mean, the I'm thing. I mean, if you took the, you know, you took the military budget and just like pushed it out of helicopters and stacks a hundred dollar bills oh, all over the world, you'd end up, you know, probably creating uh, the same sort of increase in security. Who the hell wants to attack course, America? I'll be go, go 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 to the warlords in Afghanistan and say, look, here, well, you're on our payroll. We're going to give you a lot of money. We'll give you guys a lot of money. Keep the peace. Right. And please don't kill people. And, 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 and for, 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 for if you, if the murder rate's really low and we're going to have, we'll watch this, uh, you'll get more money. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm 95% not kidding here. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. but we'll it's, never, it, it seems what bothers me is we don't learn from history and that really bothers me. You know, I mean, George Bush and Rumsfeld and, and Wolfowitz. And, and Richard Pearl and William Crystal and all these awesome guys have never done a day of service in their fucking life. And Dick Cheney. And, and I know Rumsfeld did something in the Air Force, whatever. And, but, but, but the, you know, and then where are these guys now, these architects of these wars? Where are you guys? You know, where are you? Yeah, this they're sitting on the boards of oil companies. I mean, because they had the hubris to restructure the Middle East, but they just disappear. And you know what they say, guys like Wolfowitz? You know what he'll say? If I was running the thing, it would have been different. (laughs) That Douglas Heath and those guys. Yeah, I know, guys. I know. Yeah. I'm sure if you guys had been running it, it would have been different. I'm sure that the the, the arrogance, I have zero respect for these people. I really do. I don't respect them. Yeah. I don't. See, I, I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's a failure to learn from history. I think that that what's ruling American foreign policy is the profit motive. And, you know, General Electric and uh, Boeing and these, uh, you know, Raytheon, they need to make money. And they're not making money if shit's not blowing up somewhere, if there's not war going on. It's sure, the only thing we're good at. If you're a, 
Yeah, and if you're the brass, if you're if the Pentagon brass, if you're a military brass, you you're you know those generals and those 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 people on the ground knew that this war was hopeless in Afghanistan. Look at the communiques. Look at the interviews, the in-house interviews. This has all been made public. They knew yeah. forever that this was an unwinnable war. This was a joke. Not one but, person wanted to blow the whistle because you got your career. Because you that's gotta the make, thing. You got your life. And and also fuck it. What happens is, as a human being, you go, fuck it. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a big clusterfuck. I'm part of it. I'm doing my job and getting out. No accountability. Another example of what happens when government, including military, gets too big. There's no accountability. There's no accountability. Yeah, the accountability is to the corporations. And that's, that's it. Because when you get out of the military, then you get a job as a lobbyist. I don't think the point is to win wars. I think the point is to keep them going. And make money. I mean, that's that seems to be everything is about taking money from the public and, you know, giving it to the private, as we see right now. Yeah, maybe maybe I one day I can write something funny that that takes (laughs) everyone, including me, including me, because I'm being critical. Well, why, why wasn't I? Why didn't I do my homework? I didn't learn from history either. I'd probably be the same way. So I'm not you know, that's the other thing that frustrates me about myself. You know, I, I've not been critical enough. I wanted to be liked. Hmm. I, yeah. So I'm taking yeah. myself to town. <laughs> so, you know, I think of someone right. like George Carlin who combines this kind of rage that we're talking about right now. My favorite with, comedian. My favorite humor. comedian yeah. of all time. My favorite. Is I'm that why? Time. Because he found a way to preserve the rage and yet ha- find humor in it as well? Is that yes. what you admire? Yes. 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 And he was gutsy and didn't yeah. mind being disturbing and not being liked. Yeah. I'm starting to realize how to do that sometimes. You know, the, the, the hippies in, in during the Vietnam War, I'm watching this documentary by Ken Burns, the hippies, the flower children, the sandal wearers, the beads, the patchouli, the weed. I would have been critical of those people mm. because because I would have been defending my father and the right. Marines and America and short hair and broad shoulders and the farm and, and all the thing, all the mythology that comes with being an American, God, guts and glory, because that's how I see myself, because it makes me feel like a man, it makes me feel macho. It makes me feel safe because it's worked for me. Mm. But what, what when I would have been critical, I would have been waving a flag with all the fucking the people that were, you know, my country or right or, or wrong. Kind of. Yeah. Guess who was right? Guess who was right? The people I would have been criticizing. They were, yeah. Right. They were right. Yeah. Although a lot so, of them were, a lot of them were conformists as well. You know, like a lot of hippies were just hippies because their friends were hippies. You know, they're, I don't well, think they were free thinkers no, are few annoying. and far they between. They, yeah. They fucking annoy me. Yes. I believe me. I'm, that's right. If you're wearing a chest gem, and you got sandals, and you use the word journey and universe a lot. Chances <laughs> are you're 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 a pseudo cult leader, and you're selling your cock at the end of the day to some hippie girl. So get out of here. That's <laughs> why yeah, so I got my own criticism. Of that. Fuck out. Yeah. Here. Yeah. I'm not you gonna know, hang out with. There's a there's a great essay uh, by this guy named Paul Graham. I think he was a Silicon Valley, like one of the OG Silicon Valley guys. But he's just really smart. And he wrote this essay where he said, you know, we look back 
uh, a generation or two, and we can see where they were obviously wrong about stuff, but they didn't know how wrong they were, right? Like thinking that, you know, some races are superior to others or that women aren't smart enough to vote or, you know, whatever, or homosexuality is a disease, a mental disease. So we look at that and we say, God, how could they have not known how wrong they were? And so he wrote this essay and he's like, okay, knowing that this is how history works, that each generation looks back and and the mistakes of previous generations are obvious, what can we do, where can we look in our own biases, in our own thought processes, and try to figure out where we're wrong, even though we can't see it from here, you know? Oh, man, yeah. What a great great exercise. Oh, it's a, it's an excellent essay. I'll send it to you. I'm I'm making a note to uh, to send you a co- uh, the the please, link. Please send that to me because I've been taking myself to task in in that regard. I've been looking at 53 years old, which is what I am now. I've been thinking about how so much of my philosophy and my biases and my my knee jerk reactions are uh, maybe all of them are colored by the fact that I was raised by a 1950s male and a 1950s woman, uh, Catholic, uh, Irish, and Italian. Uh, my father, Marine, a Midwestern farm boy, uh, and, and, and in a society that, that put those people first and, and where it was easier, where uh, my father could find a job as a banker. My father was a straight white male. My father was a conservative guy by nature. My parents stayed married. All those things worked in my favor and made my life much easier to the point where I had my college paid for when I was trying to be an actor in, in uh, New York. In my 20s, my dad paid my rent. I mean, I, I got it all. I got it all. It was easy peasy for O'Brien. I know I became an actor and it took a long time to make it and all that. But my life has been a fucking cakewalk in comparison to a lot of people. So what happens when I see people criticizing the American way, criticizing uh, people like my who have positions like my father, like people like Noam Chomsky, sort of a thin Jewish guy who was always on the outside looking in, who's a, you know, I have a, I have a visceral reaction to him. Hmm. Whenever I hear Bernie Sanders, I go, you're a socialist. And I kind of stop listening because this system worked for me and I can make an argument for the marketplace and all that. But a lot of this is just because it worked for me. And a lot of it's because it makes me feel safe. And so the minute you start to question the foundations that nurtured, suckled me. I get very, I, I get very nervous, and I stop listening, and I go on the attack mode. But right? it sounds like you're doing that within yourself right now. It sounds like you're very much questioning your assumptions and your privilege and yes. all that. Yeah, but late to the dance, Chris. I'm, 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 I should have done that when I was by thirty. But I'm, yeah, finally. Talk about a slow learner. Jesus, I mean, really, I'm such a slow learner, you know? <laughs> well, you oh, were why busy. Why does it take me so long to criticize the war effort in Afghanistan and Iraq? I've got to, we've been there for 17 years. Yeah. 
And I, I, I didn't want to see it. I had to take a look at what was really going on, you know. Well, I'll tell you, uh, just to finish the previous thought, that essay by uh, Paul Graham, one of the things he says, the best place to look for um, the things that we're wrong about but don't know we're wrong about is in the things that are taboo to talk about, the things that will get you kicked out of the cocktail party if you mention them. Yep. And it, yep. it's so, you know what I mean? It's so interesting because it's that silence, that taboo is what preserves the ignorance I agree with you. I agree with you. That's you know, like true. 20 years ago, if you had said, you know what? I think uh, a lot of Catholic priests are probably uh, child abusers. Oh, my God. People would have lost been... their mind. I would have lost my mind. Yeah. I would have found that. I'm not, I don't even go to church. Uh, <laughs> but I come from a Catholic tradition. I would have found I would have been I would have been offended and I would have yeah. defended it. Yeah, you're right. So, Disney did a movie about this. Do you, I don't know if you remember this. It was called, it was some movie about a, a Catholic priest who was gay, I think, or something. Mm. And I remember a guy saying, he was so outraged that he said, I'm going to, I'm going to boycott Disney or it was some company. He, he was a Catholic and he was a family man. And he was so outraged that, that somebody would make a movie about a corrupt priest. And I yeah. was kind of on his side and I'm, I don't even go to church. But it was my culture. It was it was where I came from. It was it was it was an attack on on, on the foundations of Western civilization and and all that stuff, right? Yeah. So I was immediately I was immediately very uh, you know defensive. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting how how you're you know you're acknowledging your defensiveness that sort of comes from the way you were raised, and yet you're also being very critical, which is. It's almost like there's a schism between your younger self and your more mature self. Hopefully. You know? Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Now, is this, do you think this came about just, just from getting older or is it a question of having kids and starting to see things from their perspectives and not wanting to pass on unexamined bias to them? What do you think caused this? It, this comes, schism? From realizing that the, it comes from realizing that the contract you enter into is, is, is not a real one. The contract, that was sold to me, the idea that, that, that America always has everyone everywhere's interests, best interests in mind, that we stand for democracy and freedom and individual liberty, and that we do things as America within the law, within the Geneva Conventions, within the, 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 the realm of decency, and, and that America is the greatest experiment of all time, which I believe, I mean, the Constitution is a work of God, for God's sake. It's so genius. Uh, yes, yes. Founding fathers and all that sacred shit. But realizing that um, it's a little more fucking complicated than that and a lot yeah. more messy. Yeah. And, that, um, and that the things I was raised to trust and believe in, not so. Not so. And Your that it doesn't work for everyone. Yeah. Your father's still alive, am I right? He is. And what's your relationship? And I don't want to paint him great. I don't want to paint him like a dinosaur. My father is a man who is very critical and, and very, very intelligent about his criticism and very, uh, I think, takes himself to task and has changed. What I love about my father is at 80 almost, he changes his mind. 
Yeah, that's he fantastic. He is open and receptive to the evidence and, and way more likely now to say, I don't know. He was very yeah. opinionated. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, I think he's come through his own evolution. Yeah, that's but cool. But he, he, you know, yeah. But, you know, at the same time, he could be more cynical. He could be, he could stand to be more uh, suspicious. You know, I, my father died a year and a half ago. And uh, when I was young, I, you know, I was very radical. When I was in my 20s, I was super radical. And, you know, when I was in my 20s, it was the Reagan administration. It was death squads in El Salvador and, you know, trying to overthrow the Sandinista government. And, you know, just from my perspective, just very obvious corruption and and profit-driven indifference to human life and so on. Um, so the kind of radicalism you're talking about, I've I've had since I was in college, um, and my dad was a, a corporate executive, and you know believed in the essential goodness of America, and that you know most politicians and business people were trying to just do a good job and help people, and um, so we had a lot of. A patriot and and like what you were saying, like my dad was the first in his gener in his family to go to college and he got a really good job and he, you know, got promoted and promoted and promoted. And next thing you know, he's at corporate headquarters in Manhattan and, you know, he's got an expense account and a six figure salary and he put me through college and my sister and and, and let's had, add and let's add to the fact and let's add, let's add to the fact that in your father's experience, my father's experience, let's add to the fact that half the world at that time was starving and half the world was essentially under communist dictatorship, right. communist you know, slavery. They couldn't move about. They, could, they, were, they were living behind walls. So, so it's, they are forgiven for defending America. And so, so are you and I. Well, I was for thinking that this was... You know, and, and in many ways, we were right that this was the greatest country in the world. It still is. But that doesn't mean you don't criticize it. You don't well, lose your patriotic yeah. card for being a fucking critic. Right. Well, what I was going to say is that, you know, in the last 20 years of his life, my dad really came around to seeing my perspective and became um, you know, much more critical of America and much more disappointed in in america and you know i felt i was just thinking of this when you were describing your dad and how he could stand to be a little more you know critical or cynical or whatever and and i was thinking how on one level i felt i felt good in a way that my dad finally came around and agreed with me that a lot of what's going on is just you know behavior of empire it has nothing to do with helping people or you know it's just control and power and money but but I also felt, I still feel a real sense of sadness that he lost that optimism, even if I think it was yeah. more accurate. Um, yeah. That, that's, like, that's his love for me led him to lose that innocence that he had grown up with. I feel a little responsible for that. Huh. Yeah. Or maybe you were just right. And he came around to the realization that he was naive or 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 that america had changed too you know like as you say it, it was a different world uh, the one he grew up in his perspective may have been more accurate then but it wasn't in the 80s you know well th think about john f kennedy 
And think about how men of my father's generation saw it. John F. Kennedy was, was a, a little bit short of God to a lot of Americans. I mean, black and white, by the way. Oh, John yeah. F. Kennedy was untouchable, right? And if we knew the extent of his womanizing, for example, uh, you know, whatever it might have been, if we could have seen behind the veil, I think we would have had a very different point of view. You know, and whatever it was, you know, historians paint a less rosy picture of JFK. But boy, he was, it's, it was easier to be naive back then. Do you Maybe. think, do you Maybe think there's that, more information now? Yeah, that's true. But, but I also wonder, do you think that it really would have affected his reputation that much? You know, um, because well, we were, those were, we were those were the days of Mad Men, right? That was those were the days when a guy having an affair was kind of considered normal. And damn, if you're having an affair with Marilyn Monroe, them, no, I think we were still a very, a very puritanical society. You never spoke about it in polite company. I mean, remember Kennedy was a Catholic. That was yeah. an issue. Yeah, that that's was true. an issue in the election. So, so no, I think that I think that. Um, that would have been it's a game changer today back then it would have been swept under the rug you know the, the press it was so taboo that the press themselves wouldn't dare publish it you, you really didn't see that the press would never really i mean that was an outrage yeah it just wasn't what was done right so, so where do you where do you think we're going now what what's your feeling are you hopeful about do you think we're at a pivot point in american political history or are we just sliding down into the swamp here well uh, i think i think sometimes i think that nothing new changes sometimes i think we're we're always you know we're always on the brink of disaster and that's always what it's said but i think at the end of the day um there are there's way more to be positive about worldwide uh, I mean, I think Steven Pinker in his book Enlightenment Now does a good job of arguing for this. I think overall we are we have much more reason to be optimistic than otherwise, as always and will always be the case. There are challenges. Maybe climate change is the catastrophe. The alarmists are saying it is. Hopefully it's not. Uh, maybe. Um, Maybe we are losing our democracy. But, you know, listen, I don't know. It's harder to get away with stuff. You know, they say we've never been more divided and, you know, we've turned these factions. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. And maybe it isn't new. Maybe it's just easier for people to voice their their noise uh, because they have platforms like Twitter and Instagram. But it doesn't, you know, yeah. it all starts to come out in the wash, right? You know, I know cancel culture, but not really. You just keep moving forward. There's such a glut of lights and noise that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe what's really happening is we're being nudged together. Maybe what's really happening is it's becoming easier to feel emotionally to understand emotionally what it is to be someone else 
Maybe science and experience and technology is making a case for the fact that there is very little difference between you and a Highlander from Papua New Guinea, a Swede, a Laplander, a Syrian refugee. Maybe at the end of the day, saying that we're different than those people over there is harder to justify. And I think that's a good mm. thing. And technology is yeah, getting to the I, point. I often... What happens when we can have virtual? Yeah. I was saying, what happens when you can have a virtual experience of what it is to be someone else? What happens when I can, yeah. when I can log into the neural net and have a virtual experience of what it is to be Chris Ryan? Well, I know what happens. I have a lot of sex. But, you know, for anybody else, we all want to be Chris yeah, yeah. But, you know, that, but, you know at the end of the day, you know, that's, that's, that, that's what I think is going on. Yeah. That's what I think is going on. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, that's – I and you know what? Because I still feel so bad about my dad, I'm not going to try to talk you out of that, Brian. I just want you to stay, stay with that optimism. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm I, I'm going to let you go because I know you got a lot of shit to do, and this technology is weird. Your 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 voice is coming in and out. I I think we got a good recording. I hope we did. Uh, um, if we but, don't, uh, let's do it again. <laughs> then the, you're just encouraging me to lie and tell you it didn't work so we'll do it again but dude i Anytime. i can't i miss you brother i i i really uh you know we we haven't hung out that much but uh those have been some of my best times in la the nights you and i went out for a few drinks and dinner at your it's uh, always Via Veneto. it's always it's always so awesome it's always so awesome to hang and yeah. i i uh I, and I, you, you are one of my favorite people that I never see. It kills me. So yeah, I, hope you I feel the same. I need, I need people like you in my life. So I appreciate the time. Always. Great. Well, as soon as they, they let us travel, I'm heading back that way. So we'll, we'll do it in person. And uh, whether it's on the mics or not, doesn't matter to me. Thanks for your time, brother. Thanks, pal. You're the best. I'll see you in a bit. Okay, mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got Beer Cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Headstone I don't want to 
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.